And so we're beginning a new collection this season called Together. And in this collection, we're going to be exploring the beauty that God cultivates when we walk together. I think in this new season, as we enter this new space, I feel an urgency to refocus on community. Because how many of you know that San Francisco doesn't need another Sunday service? It doesn't need a, a fancy production. It needs another covenant community. And for our house specifically, a place where the rebels and the runaways can find a home and grow in God. And so in this season, I feel um, a pull, a conviction to focus on community, to focus on fostering deep and meaningful relationships, to intentionally move toward one another in love. I had you guys ask that question because I think we need more stories That when we come to church, like, oh my God, someone from this community loved me this way. We should have that fresh on our minds if we're a healthy church. Um, The way I felt loved this week, um, I went to Southern California this week with Zion. By the way, taking a one-year-old on a plane, I kid you not, for an hour and a half, there was no more than three seconds where Zion would not stop moving. For an hour and a half, I had I was on guard, keeping him from touching the people in front of us, behind us. Anyway, um, we needed a place to leave our our, our other son, Fig. He's he's actually a dog, um, and we left him with Jamie. And Jamie, one when we, when I showed up, I don't know if you know this, but peaches are like my favorite fruits. And so right when we showed up, Jamie actually gave us a bag of peaches to grab Fig, and um, I like ate all of that that night. I think it was like three peaches. But I think we need more stories where we could come into this house and say, I have been loved and touched by the people. Um, If I could be completely transparent with you, I told Alex and Seabell this. At the start of this year, I was kind of going through a funk. Um, We were gathering every Sunday. Attendance was pretty abysmal. It was pretty discouraging as a pastor. And I remember asking myself, what's the point of all this? Are people actually growing in this house? Are people loving each other? Is this thing working? And honestly, I, um, I was like, if this continues on for a few more years, like I'm going to retire early. I, I don't want to invest in this if it's not meaningful, if it's not actually bearing good fruit. But what kind of snapped me out of the funk was when we did baptisms. And the first one was Seabell, if you remember, during Easter. And as Seabell was sharing her story, I remember just thinking, this is why we exist. This is why we're here. The, 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 the tangible evidence of God moving on someone's life, but that actually wasn't the thing that touched me the most. What moved me was to see our entire community rally around her and her story. And I was just moved to tears and blown away by how much people were willing to pour their love on Seabell on this important day. And then when Alex did his baptism, phew, that wrecked me. Because I was like, this thing is actually real. This is what it's about. It's not about the worship sets. It's not about the sermon series. It's about can we love each other as a community? Can we embody the love of Christ? And if we can't do that and we do everything else well, we're missing the mark. And so I feel like in this season, in this new, I call it 99 2.0 reset, this new season of our church's life, I feel like we need to focus on what it looks like to really walk together. See, when people come into our church, they're not asking, is this the best coffee in town? I mean, we got Andy Town and Sight Glass. We got good coffee in the city. They're not asking, is this the best music ever? Come on, y'all got Spotify, Mav City at least a million times better than us. They're not asking, is the preaching charismatic and legit? Trust me, you could find the world-class teaching on YouTube anywhere else. Know what they're asking, whether they realize it or not, is, is this a place where I can find belonging? 
Is this a people I can belong to? Deep down inside, that's what people are actually asking when they walk into any church. The question is, what if we stopped measuring church success by numeric growth? What if we measured church success by asking questions like, how deep are the relationships in the community? Are members of the community at peace with one another? Is there harmony? Are relationships reconciled when there are differences? These should be the gauges for how healthy and successful our church really is. And now more than ever, I find that people in the world are moving away from one another. Look no further than social media. We got Republicans versus Democrats, conservatives versus progressives, pro-life versus pro-choice, pineapples on pizza versus no pineapples on pizza. By the way, how many people do not believe pineapple belongs on pizza? Hot take, hot take. It's okay, we still love you. In the world, you... You and everyone else would not be friends, right? People are moving away toward one another, building up barriers and walls, but we as the church were meant to embody something different. While the world is moving away from one another, we are called to be be a people that move toward one another in love despite our differences. How many of you know that when Christ died, it wasn't just so that we could get to God. It was also so that we could get to one another. And I think that's sometimes the missing piece. Sometimes we're all about, I need to get to God. Jesus died so I could be close to him. But actually, Jesus died not so you could just be close to him, but so you could be close to the person next to you, the person in your community group, the person to your left and your right. The the gospel breaks down the walls that seem to divide us. It brings us together as we were meant to be. Now, one of the books that we're studying or that I'm studying in this season as we go through this collection is a book called When the Church Was a Family by Joseph H. Hellerman. I shared part of this quote last week, but I'm going to share it again. This is kind of the thesis for what we're going with in this collection. And he says this, spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. People who remain connected with their brothers and sisters in the local church almost invariably grow in self-understanding and they mature in their ability to relate in healthy ways to God and to their fellow human beings. This is especially the case for those courageous Christians who stick it out through the often messy process of interpersonal discord and conflict resolution. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. People who stay also grow. In other words, you can't mature in isolation. This is literally the context where you grow, where you progress in spiritual maturity and faith. The question is, why is it so freaking hard to cultivate deep and meaningful relationships in our lives? Why do we continue to find our way through life and navigate through life alone and isolated, trying to figure it out on our own? Why are we unable to stay in relationships without imploding, stay in community, and grow in the interpersonal context that God has given us? Why is it so hard to actually build relationships that mean something? And I think the church is guilty of this as too. Like we come into this church and we're supposed to be this place where we foster healthy, deep, meaningful relationships, but oftentimes they're just leaving us wanting more. Why is that the case? Well, recent poll found that 40%, this is going to blow your mind, 40% of American adults 
have zero to one confidants in their lives. What's a confidant? Someone that you could confide in about anything. Someone that you could lean on in times of difficulty. People who truly know you. 40% of American adults do not have zero to one confidant. So not even one. Some people have zero. Some people have one. Another study found that Americans are actually the loneliest people in the world. I don't know. Some people might debate that, but... But this, this study found that Americans tend to be the loneliest people in the world. And sociologists are actually saying that the greatest pathology of our day and age is actually loneliness. That it's usually related to things like depression and mental illness and death in our gener- generation. And this doesn't exclude the church. Like American Christians are just as lonely as everyone else. And I'm not just talking about the single folks in here. I'm talking about even the married folks. We're talking about mega church pastors, people that are surrounded by others all the time. We are no different. There is a loneliness epidemic here in our country, here in our time. But the question is, why is this the case? And I believe the, the point that we're trying to make in this teaching is that the answer is extreme individualism. Extreme individualism. We in America have been socialized to be completely independent and self-reliant, right? We believe that our dreams, our rights, our feelings, our personal fulfillment should take precedence over everything else. In other words, our needs are more important than the needs of our community or our family or our nation, Dr. Brene Brown, y'all, y'all love Dr. Brene Brown, right? Yeah, we love her in this house. Dr. Brene Brown, she once said that if America had a tombstone, what would be inscribed on it is death by rugged individualism. That this individualistic spirit, this idea that we can go about life on our own, that we are at the top of priorities over everyone else is actually the thing that's killing our country and the people in our generation. You'll be surprised actually to find that America is quite different from the majority of the world, most other cultures around the world still hold to this traditional value that the needs of the community should take precedence over the needs of the individual. Let's take a look at mask mandates, case study. If you go to my motherland, Seoul, Korea, when they rolled out mask mandates, people willingly and joyfully cooperated with the government and wore masks. In fact, they were wearing masks even before the mandate went out. People were willing to suffer a minor inconvenience for the greater good. But what happens as soon as we roll that out in America, right? There are, pro- there are literally protests still raging today against mass. Look at all the pushback that we experienced in this country. Why people are unwilling to give up their rights, their comforts, for the benefit or the health of someone else, namely people that they'll never meet. And this is a symptom of extreme individualism. Another way this expresses itself is how we make decisions. We bask in the freedom of making our own decisions and choices, right? Whether we realize it or not, we kind of carry this chip on our shoulder in America, like, don't tell me what to do, right? Like, I'll do what I want. I'm my own person. This is who I am. And take some of the biggest decisions that we're ever going to make in our lives, like vocation. What am I going to do with my life? Or marriage, who am I going to spend my life with? Or location, where am I going to live? In Western culture, we typically make these weighty decisions on our own. We might get sounding boards here and there, but 
for the most part, we are the final say in what the answers to these questions are. What's best for me? What do I want to do? What's going to benefit me in the long run? But people in traditional strong group cultures like Korea that I mentioned typically never make these decisions in isolation. They're always made within the context of family or community. And get this, the well-being of that family or community is often considered when making their final decision. In other words, it's not just like, I need to go, I need to go halfway across the country. I need to take this job because it's going to benefit me. But they're thinking, how is this going to affect my people? How is this going to affect my family, my community? This is a a crazy fact that I, I discovered. Did you know that the therapeutic culture in our day and age is a relatively recent phenomenon in world history? Like you won't find a lot of um, therapy sessions hundreds and hundreds of years ago. It's, it's rather new and novel for us. But what's interesting is that as Western individualistic values became more and more widely accepted, that therapy actually became more and more popular. There's a correlation between individualism making its way throughout the world and a rise in the need for therapy. And psychologists actually theorize that a great majority of people on this planet never needed the kind of therapy that we need today until society began to dump all the responsibility of making these weighty decisions on our own upon the shoulders of the individual. Isn't that crazy? In other words, most people didn't need therapy until we started trying to do and figure it all out on our own. It's a symptom of extreme individualism that we have bought into. Extreme individualism has pushed us over the edge emotionally, relationally, and we were never meant to live in isolation. Now, I want to pause here real quick because you might be saying, okay, are you arguing for like a collectivist society? No, I'm not saying that individualism is bad and collectivism is good. Both have benefits and both can be abused. For example, um, chances are if you grew up in an immigrant family like mine, um, the idea that the needs of the community take precedence over the needs of the individual were taken to pretty unhealthy extremes. Right? Maybe some of you have those stories where my parents wanted me to be, I had two choices. I could be a doctor or a lawyer. An artist, a rapper, pastor was not in the books. And when I wanted to become a pastor, thank God that God opened their hearts. But in most immigrant families, there is this idea that the needs of the community, the desires of my family are more important than what I want. Or maybe if you've been in the church for a long time, you've experienced seasons where I'm doing so much for the church. I'm trying to meet the needs of the church that I'm burning myself out and my needs aren't being met. See, a healthy sense of individualistic focus is a good thing. In fact, our ability to contribute to the group and pour into the people around us, our circles, our families, our communities is only enhanced when we establish a healthy sense of self. But what I am saying is that we have to understand how extreme individualism is negatively impacting us. That there are things that, there are ways that we're living that we are not called to live through if we, if we continue to buy into this ideology. But we have to understand that this extreme individualistic ideology has also affected our theology. How many of you have heard the expression, Jesus as my personal savior? If you've ever done those missionary tracks, it's like, is Jesus, have you accepted Jesus as your personal savior? You might have heard that expression, Jesus is my personal savior, but you might be surprised to find that personal savior is actually nowhere in the Bible. 
There's no passage that talks about accepting Jesus as your personal savior. The idea of a personal walk with God, personal time with God is fairly new. Rather, what we find in the Bible is a God who seems just as concerned with the people as he is with the person. When Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, he begins his prayer with our father, not my father. In Paul's letters, Paul refers to Jesus as our Lord 53 times. Guess how many times he refers to Jesus as my Lord once, right? In the early church, relationship with God was almost completely expressed in community. There was no idea of going home and getting into your prayer closet. Almost all expressions of faith were done in the gathering, in the community, among other believers, in the family, Another way that this has expressed itself in our adi- is our attitude toward church, right? Western believers, we've adopted this uh, consumeristic attitude toward church. Church exists to meet my needs, to fulfill my desires. Think about popular phrases like, what I got out of the sermon, or I'm in the middle of church shopping. By the way, if you're in the middle of church shopping, totally okay. I'm not bashing you. I'm just saying that there is this consumeristic mindset that's tainted our view of church. The first question most people ask when they walk into a church is, how can the church meet my needs? Instead of asking, how can I meet the needs of the community? One of the craziest experiences of a first-time guest that I ever experienced, 2019, when we're in that tiny breather office space, a girl named Seabell walks into the door. Seabell, her first day of church, never met us, never been to our church, up in a random office studio called Breather, entering into this new space. You know what she brings with her? She brings a box of croissants for us, who she's never met, and a, a fat wad of cash in an envelope for tithes. And I was like, who are you? Like, have, you, have we met before? Like, is there any sort of connection? But there's, she just has this posture that when I walk into church, I'm not just looking for what I can receive, although that's important too. But she's thinking, what can I give? Because what I give establishes culture way more than what I can receive. I, I have so many pastors that are like, how do you, I can't get my people to serve. And I tell them, you know what? Our church, we got like a 90% participation rate for people that are serving in church. Also, their church is like 5,000 people and ours is like 30, but I don't, I don't tell them that. I say, we got 90% of our church serving some people in multiple ministries. I believe our church really has this down that we're not just here to receive, but there's something in the pouring and the giving out as well. What am I driving here? Our relationship with one another, the way that we love and serve one another is just as important to God as our relationship with him. And I think in America, we get it twisted. We think this is the most important thing when this is actually on equal footing. We have to fight the cultural instinct to go about life on our own, to place our own needs above the needs of those in our community. Faith moves us toward one another. And so we find if we look in scripture, the biblical picture of the church isn't individualistic. It's familial. Before the church was a religion, an institution, an organization, a nonprofit, the church was first and foremost a family. And so as we wrap up here, there are three things that I want to share with you that I believe the paradigm of the church as a family challenges us to do in defiance of the individualistic ideology of our day and age. Y'all ready for that? 
All right, the first one is this. It's not all about me. Look to your neighbor and say, it's not all about me. Gene Veneer, who writes about community, he says, in any church or Christian group, there must be more people who can say me for the community than those who say the community for me. Romans 12, 10, Paul says, be devoted to one another in love, that there is this commitment and devotion to loving each other. But check this. The second thing he says, honor one another above yourselves. This doesn't mean um, I put myself down and I grovel at your feet and say, you're amazing and I'm not. That's not what he's talking about. Notice he says, honor one another. Lift someone up. Stand firm in who you are. You don't have to diminish yourself, but honor someone above yourself. Um, I don't get to watch a lot of movies anymore during the day because Zion literally can't stay still for more than three seconds. But when I turned on Disney's Encanto, did I say that right? Encanto? Encanto? I'm saying it so white. I'm so sorry. In Canto, um, when I watched it and he was just so mesmerized and I only, I didn't get to watch the whole movie, honestly, but the first few scenes kind of wrecked me where I was just sitting there like, oh my God, God is speaking to me. And Zion's just watching all the things go up in the air. But, but in the movie, it begins with this story about this family and, and the grandma says this as she's telling the story tonight, this candle will give you your gift, strengthen our community, strengthen our home. And each of the family members were endowed with this gift that would uh, be used for the protection and the benefit of the family. And I was looking at that as like, that's the church right there. God gives us our gifts. God gives us blessing so that we can strengthen the community, so that we can strengthen our home. We actually have it opposite, though, in our, in our culture. We use our gifts, what? To further our careers, to achieve our successes, to realize our dreams. But in the early church, the gifts that we received were meant to strengthen our community, to strengthen our home. And I find that one of the first things we have to realize is that everything I've been given is not just for me. I'm not the main character in this story. There's something about the people that are around me that I'm supposed to use all the gifts and blessings that I receive to empower and strengthen as well. The second thing, I can't do it alone. Look to your neighbor and say, I can't do it alone. 1 Corinthians 12, 20 to 21, Paul says, as it is, there are many parts, but one body that I cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. What's he saying? I don't need you should never be in the vocabulary of a healthy church community. Brene Brown, who we're obviously big fans of here in this place, says, as members of a social species, we derive strength not from our rugged individualism, but from our collective ability to plan, communicate, and work together. Our neural, hormonal, and genetic makeup support interdependence over independence. Saying literally the way that we are designed, the way that we are created, we were meant to work together to be in a network of other people that are supporting and loving one another. Hey, what's up, man? Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to. That's Farez, by the way. Everyone say hi, Farez. He works here. He's amazing. We've known him for like six years now. That's your family. Awesome. Um, sorry. Didn't mean to get distracted. 
Did you guys know that here in the Bay Area, one of the, the great things that we have here are these giant redwood trees? And I might have shared this illustration before. You would think that these giant tall trees, these thick, massive tree trunks go high into the sky. You would think that the roots go so deep to support them from being uh, swayed by the wind or knocking over or falling over. But what you actually find with the redwood forest is that the roots don't actually go as deep as you think they would. But what they do is they actually go horizontally and not just vertically. And what they do is they actually link up with the roots of the other trees around them. One of the reasons why redwood trees are so strong are not how deep they go, but how wide they go. That there is a root system connecting each of the trees to one another to support them from falling. See, community is never losing the awareness that I'm connected to you that I belong to you, that we're in a root system together. And so I can lean on you. I can fall upon you. If I go through tough times, we can be together in this. M. Scott Peck, who writes about this as well, says there can be no vulnerability without risk. There can be no community without vulnerability. There can be no peace and ultimately no life without community. But it takes vulnerability saying, I can't do it on my own. I need you. I need to lean onto you. I need your words. I need your encouragement. I need your help. We need to learn how to be a root system. So it's not all about me. I can't do it alone. Last thing, togetherness doesn't just happen. Is that what I wrote? Yeah, togetherness doesn't just happen. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. There's this idea that community doesn't just happen. If you... um. It's interesting. Um, I watched this documentary on Netflix about Woodstock 99. I was like a 12-year-old kid when uh, Woodstock 99 happened. I just remember seeing on MTV News all the fires. And if you, if you saw it, you would be appalled at the lack of intention and planning by the event planners and promoters. Like they just thought if we could get like 650,000 people here together, like they'll have a good time. And there was no intentionality. They just thought if we get the people here it'll be a good time. But what ended up happening is I can actually do a whole sermon series on this. All of humanity's worst instincts came out when people got together. Like they char- they took all personal water bottles away from people as they entered so that they could spike up the price of water in the space and make more money. Um, they, they didn't plan adequate water systems, anything like that. And you just saw humanity's worst impulses come out. But it's just appalling to think that they thought if we could just get people here play some good music, they'll have a good time. I think oftentimes when we think, if we could just get people in church, just get people in community group, then we're gonna have great community, healthy, thriving families. But if you've ever been part of a community group or part of a group where no one's invested, you know you can't just get people together. It takes intention. Togetherness doesn't just happen. It happens when you say, I'm willing to invest, I'm willing to commit, I'm willing to devote myself to you. See, we can have tens of dozens of community groups in this house, but if people aren't invested, if they don't say, my heart belongs to you, I want to pour into this relationship, I want to invest into this, then none of it's going to work. Togetherness doesn't just happen. And the challenge I want to ask you today, I asked you earlier, what was the last thing you remember, uh, uh, an act of love that someone gave towards you? I want to ask you this, when is the last time you moved toward love, towards someone with an act of love in our community? 
When was the last time you showed an act of love or care or encouragement or support to someone in this room? And I think we need, we need more opportunities to be able to do that. You'll notice that we actually are, um, I, I didn't mean to do this, but I'm trying to spin it like we did. Um, community groups are ending, what, this week and next week, right? Um, as we're starting this collection. And you would think that's kind of counterintuitive, right? Like, wouldn't we want to go through the sermon series together in community groups? But I'm kind of glad, because I think sometimes we use Sunday gatherings and community groups midweeks as crutches. Um, and we actually don't go out of our way to intentionally do the work of loving one another. But this month will really be the test. Am I willing to invest in these relationships without the crutches of these gatherings that are set for me? And I want to hope that we can come out and say yes. And so these are three things that we're challenged to do. Looking at the early church as a family, it's not all about me. I can't do it alone. Togetherness doesn't just happen. Now, I want to leave you. This is the practical bit. I want to leave you with the tool that's going to help us, language that's going to help us go deeper with one another. Have you guys ever heard of the five levels of communication? Okay. There are five levels of communication, five being the most shallow and one being the most intimate. And I'm just going to share them with you really quick. The first or the fifth level of communication are cliches, right? Shallow conversations when you're asking, oh, how are you? But you're not really asking, how are you? You're just trying to make nice small talk. Oh, what have you been up to? How's the weather? Real nice. Anything you do fun this weekend? Cliches, right? These are things that are super surface level shallow. Level four, facts, right? Information sharing. This is what I did at work. This is the project I had to work on. Have you seen what's on the news? Did you hear about Woodstock 99? Watch that documentary. Facts, right? We're talking about things that are concrete. Level three, opinions. Yo, what do you want for lunch after church? Why can't anyone decide on what they want? What do you want for lunch? What do you want to eat? How do you feel about politics? What's something that you really enjoyed on Netflix or HBO Max? I'm watching the rehearsal right now. Probably the most brilliant show ever. What are you doing? What do you like, right? Level two, feelings. How are you actually feeling? Like, how was this week for you? Did you go through something tough? Um, Is there something going on in your life? Is there something that you're wrestling with? Um, Are you feeling encouraged or discouraged, hopeful or lack of hope? How are you actually feeling? And number one, transparency. Not just how you are, but who you are. And this is like the deep confessions of who we are. It's like saying, I'm actually really depressed right now. I'm, I'm going through a really tough time. It's saying, yo, I, I did something really bad last week, and I just feel so guilty about it. It's saying, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing in my life. It's actually the d- inner turmoils that we share with n- one another. Level five, cliches. Level four, facts. Level three, opinions. Level two, feelings. Level one, transparency. And it's not that we need to move to level one with everyone. I would honestly hate that, right? There are a few trusted people that we're willing to go to the higher levels with. But the challenge here in this room today that I want to leave you with as we end our time is I want you this week or maybe in the next few weeks to spend time with someone in our community. You could grab a cup of coffee. You can do a FaceTime call. You could do a Zoom. I don't care. Just grab someone in our community and just move beyond level four or five, okay? You can talk about what's what's my favorite show. What do you like to eat? You can talk about opinions, but... Ideally, if you can move to level two, how are you doing? How are you feeling? What, what are some of the things that are burdening your heart right now? You know, there are, 
Krista and I, maybe because, is that Zion? I could hear Zion crying. Yeah. Maybe because we're the pastors, but we, we get a chance to actually know what some of the inner turmoils of some of your lives here in this space. And I wonder, do you, do you guys know each other's stuff? Like, do you know what the person to your left and right is actually going through besides the cliche pleasantries of Sunday morning gatherings? But the second thing is you have to be willing to open up your heart, right? Vulnerability takes risk and community cannot happen without vulnerability. And so that is a challenge. Um, I won't quiz you on it next week, but I really hope that you really take this seriously. Find someone in our community, maybe someone you don't normally spend time with, or maybe if you are going through really a tough time, find someone that you deeply trust. But let's begin to move toward one another in love. Um, I want to conclude our time. If I could welcome up the worship team. Why don't we close our eyes right now? I don't know if you can see traces of this individualistic extremism, this ideology that's made its way into your life. But even when I look at my own life, and I'm the pastor of this church, I could see how so often I try to go about things on my own. I try to figure it out on my own. I try to make all these decisions by myself. I I think that I could handle myself emotionally, and I think that I don't need anyone. But I just hear the voice of the Lord challenging us to something more. What if this place, what if this house can embody something more than the individualistic tendencies we see in our culture? What if while in the workplace, it's hard to find people to trust because everyone's out for themselves? What if when they walk into this room, they find a people that are willing to rally around their causes, to rally around their hearts and their dreams? What if while on social media or are there other spheres of influence, what if, what if they experience places where they're not accepted or they find, find it hard to really be open and vulnerable? What if this space could be a place where people can feel safe enough to actually be seen? I believe that is what the church is called to embody, that we can be a people that embody this familial love that goes beyond the individual So right now, just ask God, God, what is something you're challenging me to do in this sermon? Maybe it's this idea that it's not all about me. Maybe instead of asking, what is community doing for me? Maybe the question God's challenging you to ask is, what can I do for the community? Maybe instead of asking, when is this person going to reach out to me? Maybe you could ask, how can I reach out to someone in this community? Maybe it's that second challenge where you're saying, I can't do it alone. And you're actually going through a lot right now, but you you haven't really shared it with anyone in this community. You haven't asked for the advice or the wisdom or the prayers of the person to your left and your right. And you're trying to figure it out on your own before you come into this space. Maybe the challenge for you today is to actually open your heart up and invite someone into your trial, into your struggle. Maybe the challenge for you is to look for someone in our community that you think might be going through something. And the last is just, maybe you're being challenged to be more intentional, to understand church doesn't just happen, community doesn't just happen, togetherness doesn't just happen. Maybe the challenge for you today is, I need to 
I need to be more intentional. I need to actually move toward people. I need to move toward someone in love. Whatever it is, allow the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart. God, right now, would you speak to our community? I, I don't want to build a church of healthy individuals. God, I want to build a thriving community. I want to be part of a people that love radically, where the love and the acceptance and the support that people experience in this house makes it so attractive that they say God is real. God is real because I see the evidence of his love moving in these people. But help us be beyond ourselves. Help us think beyond our own lives. Help us live beyond our own desires, our own needs. Help us have the community, the people, the family in mind. Only you can do it, God. But it starts with this, with this prayer, God, I want to love this people. I thank you you're doing it, God.